What if you were a blind young man living in medieval times, and you were called to a special and future mythological mission to become the wizard Merlin? Robert Trescalard's fantasy Merlin's Spiral series has been reforged into audiobook form, and he's working on a new series to come. This day, Sir Robert himself rides into the studio to share more about his medieval fantasy. Roundtables, Knights of Yore, and the wonderful true king reigning over them all. Welcome back to the Castle of Fantastical Truth, the podcast from lorehaven.com, in which we explore fantastical stories for God's glory. I'm E. Stephen Burnett, Lorehaven's publisher, co-author of The Pop Culture Parent, and I would not make a good night. And I'm Zachary Russell, and with all the political turmoil our country has been through in recent years, I'm really starting to think that strange women lying in ponds distributing swords is a much better basis for a system of government. And this is episode 147, Why Can Christians Celebrate Stories About Merlin and King Arthur? And we'll be joined by author Robert Trescalard. Arthur, author Robert Trescalard. Say that three times fast. (laughs) Yes, we're all familiar with the Monty Python tropes, but I would say today, Zach, let's go to Camelot. Tis an earnest place. It can be an earnest place before it is a silly place. Uh, And it is a place with a lot of uh, history, mythological significance, and resonance for Christians who want to be in tune with the origins not only of fantastical fiction, but also of Christianity itself. I think that's why Christians uh, are so personally into fantasy. Uh, If we know our material, if we've done the research as Robert has, we can tell that these stories have deep, deep roots in our DNA as we are tracing the growth of Christianity beyond the vestiges of the Roman Empire uh, into the British Isles. And then from there, it eventually, several centuries later, uh, gets to where most of our listeners are in the United States. So we have an American author tackling some British legends. He's adapted them for the Merlin Spiral series. I'm looking forward to interviewing him later uh, about this book, uh, three books actually, and then another three to come, which is a fact I'd forgotten about. So that's why we do these conversations to recover a bunch of these facts uh, that have been uh, lost in a stone somewhere and uh, just need to be withdrawn. Yeah, I love that this is a ongoing series that he's in the midst of writing, and then it harkens back to all these legends and all of these different stories we're familiar with, but here's a new spin on it. And you may be wondering, dear listener, why go into a story about Arthur? Is that really fantasy? Well, Robert's stories have werewolves in them, and apparently so does the real legend of King Arthur. There is a, a, a almost a throwaway mention in a Welsh legend, according to Robert, that mentions an army of wolfheads. And so he's got that element in his stories, so that makes it even more spicy. It's a secret Halloween special here. Halloween in (laughs) January, if you're pining for that future holiday. Speaking of Arthur, let's go to our first sponsor for this episode, returning champ Sky Turtle Press. It's a new imprint from our sponsor, Oasis Family Media. They are still doing this fundraiser for the Fairy Queen, an old story that's being adapted for a new audience featuring a rather familiar hero, by the way. This is a new text faithful prose adaptation. C.S. Lewis remarked about the original, The Fairy Queen never loses a reader it has once gained. Once you have become an inhabitant of its world, being tired of it is like being tired of London or of life. Welcome to Edmund Spencer's The Fairy Queen, the new text faithful line-by-line prose rendering 
of Spencer's epic poem introduces new readers to Spencer's enthralling world of monsters, enchanted forests, witches, and brave but fumbling knights. To help readers overcome this struggle, classical educator Rebecca K. Reynolds worked with Elizabethan scholars to produce an annotated rendering which moves from heavy assistance in book one toward more of Spencer's language in book six. This week's episode is sponsored by Sky Turtle Press, the publishers of The Fairy Queen, which launched on Kickstarter on January the 16th and is set for a September 2023 release. You can support The Fairy Queen Project on Kickstarter. It's now moved past $116,000. It's probably even higher by the time you listen to this episode. Just go to those links in our show notes for episode 147 for fairyqueen.com or you can go to lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors for even more links. Robert Trescalard has just arrived at Lorehaven Studios riding a Celtic chariot as in days of yore. He has been crafting stories from his early youth. His author career actually began when Robert's son wanted to learn blacksmithing and sword making. The two of them set out to learn these crafts, and in the process, they were told by a relative that they were descended from a Cornish blacksmith. This lit the fire of Robert's imagination, and so, welding his Celtic research to his love of the legends of King Arthur, he forged new books. The Merlin Spiral series, Merlin's Blade, Merlin's Shadow, and Merlin's Nightmare. All three titles just recently released to audiobook. He's also a software developer, graphic artist, and a veteran homeschool dad. He and his wife have three now grown children and one grandchild, and they live in Missouri near St. Louis. And now he's in the studio brandishing a sword. I swear it wasn't intentional. Uh, you can put that back in. Oh, that looks spectacular. Yes. <laughs> so at some point, we'll hear about how that sword uh, figures into the artwork for the Merlin Spiral series. Robert, how did you discover biblical faith and fantastic imagination? I discovered them at the same time, actually, which is kind of crazy. I grew up in a family that was not really into either one of those. No one in my family was a Christian, and um, I didn't really grow up reading fantastical stories, nothing, nothing much more than, say, Dr. Zeus. But when I was in sixth grade, a good friend of mine wanted to try out for, the, for, the, for a play. It turns out it was The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And the director, crazily enough, was a Mr. Lewis. I don't know if there was any connection. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, so I, I played Fenris Ulf in uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Didn't know anything about it. Didn't know anything about C.S. Lewis. But, but the friend of mine who got me into the play, he was a Christian, and he, gave, he lent me the book, and he explained that Aslan represented Jesus. And so that was really my first exposure to both biblical truth and, and fantastic fiction at the same time. So I didn't quite understand what that meant of Aslan being... Christ, but it made me think and, and, and kind of uh, sowed some seeds in my life. We've heard a lot of our guests talk about discovering these topics both through Narnia at the same time, but I think this is the first story, Stephen, that we've heard where someone discovered this in a play that they acted in. And so I, I really like that, that you were part of that production and you became part of that story in a sense. Mm-hmm. And then so that sort of planted that seed for a well how is Jesus like Aslan? Like, well, what is Aslan like? And then you're seeing Aslan acted out. So what, what a fun way to discover this all at once. Aslan is indeed at the back of all of these stories. Uh, great to perform in a play, too. You mentioned it was Fenris Ulf. That uh, is the American version of the character originally called 
Morgram uh, from the land yeah. of Orch- or Morgram. Ma- that's right. Yes, uh, it's pronounced a little differently. The BBC version. I remember when I saw that BBC version and they called him Morgram, and I thought, no, uh, y'all changed the name for no reason. All this Hollywood stuff over in um, the UK. Uh, <laughs> no, that was C.S. Lewis's original word. But in either case, Aslan is called Aslan, and he's at the back of these stories. So what a legacy! Then again, we find uh, that uh, Lewis left just being faithful. And I like what you said there, Robert, that uh, that Aslan represents Jesus. Some people say, oh, he's an allegory for Jesus. No, actually, represent is probably a really great word because Lewis's word supposal can be a little too confusing sometimes. So there are some other ancient mythological characters uh, who, uh, in many cultures, represent Christ in legends, uh, which leads me to my first question proper here. You're the author of the Merlin's Spiral series. And I would just like to ask, uh, we've already heard a little about that in your bio, but what led to your stories uh, exploring Merlin, uh, specifically that uh, blacksmith origin story? After my um, encounter with The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe in C.S. Lewis, I went on to read Tolkien and uh, The Lord of the Rings. And then in high school, I saw the movie Excalibur. And that was my first exposure to the King Arthur legend. Not necessarily a historical movie in any way, but you know, it definitely caught my imagination at the time. I went to college, got a job, got married, life went on, had kids, didn't, didn't necessarily think about these things in great detail. And then one day in the bookstore, I picked up Stephen Lawhead's um, Song of Albion trilogy and read that. And that is what first opened my eyes to really understanding, maybe for the first time, the power of fiction in terms of, of what an author could do. And I began to think about the Chronicles of Narnia again and the Lord of the Rings in, different, in a different light um, than just, say, through a childhood lens. And so then I went on to read Stephen Lawhead's um, Pendragon Cycle, his King Arthur series, which was excellent. And I followed a very historical in terms of Geoffrey of Monmouth, Mallory sort of approach to the legend. But I, that kind of planted a seed of wanting to write fiction. Also, Frank Peretti's novels as well kind of did the same thing in terms of spiritual warfare and, and, and seeing that. And so when I um, first got the bug to begin writing, it actually wasn't anything about King Arthur. Um, in fact, I've, I've not written what I originally kind of thought about writing. And I thought at the time, well, you know, that'd be a little too hard for me to write. I don't know if I'm ready for this. I don't know how to write. I haven't, haven't, I've never done this before. And so I just kind of shelved that. And then one night I was just laying in bed. You know, my son had had started the whole blacksmithing um, thing. He was nine years old at the time. And um, so I, I bought him a um, an anvil mail order, never mail order an anvil. They're kind of heavy. <laughs> <laughs> and I built you the can get anything from Amazon these days. Yeah. And, and we started banging metal and heating up metal and just kind of learning the craft and mess around. We bought a lot of books about blacksmithing. And then my sister let, let me know that my mother's maiden name um, was Angove, which in, in Cornish is Angove or the smith, the blacksmith. So somewhere in our distant past, we, we have, were descended from a Cornish blacksmith um, from Cornwall, England. And so anyway, one night I was laying in bed thinking about the King Arthur legends. And I don't know why I was thinking about them. And I, I, was, I was just pondering the sword in the stone legend, you know. So we've got a sword that's sticking in a, in a stone. And it didn't make sense to me. I, w- I was just going, why would somebody s- stick a sword in a stone? 
Back then, swords were very expensive. Metal was very expensive, which is why spears were plentiful because they, they didn't take a lot of metal. Okay, Wood was cheap. Metal was expensive. And so a sword, a full-length sword, was, it was hard to make, expensive. Why would you chance damaging it, driving it into a stone? How did it get there? Didn't make any sense. And I was just laying there in bed, and I wasn't going, well, what if, you, what if the stone was alive somehow? What if you were trying to kill it? That kind of piqued my curiosity. Well, then you might hammer a sword into a stone. And, um, and, and there's also these other legends of the legends are, are kind of confused. It's either the sword and the stone or some legends are have the sword in an anvil or in an anvil and then into a stone or into a stone and then into an anvil. Somehow an anvil's connected with this as well, but this legend in, in, in kind of a curious way. You know, that piqued my curiosity about, about the sword and stone. And from that, the, you know, the, the stories kind of wrote themselves from there. And, and I kind of merged that with, with the whole Cornish blacksmith and the forging of Excalibur. And I, I chose a place in Britain, um, an actual location, which was the, a little village that you can find on the Ordnance Survey maps just south of Dosemary Pool, which is legendary, one of the legendary places where um, Excalibur was thrown back to the Lady of the Lake. And then you, you look in the area and you find that uh, there's a druidic circle of stones nearby. And then you find out that the name of, of, of Bodmin Moor used to be Basvena Moor, which meant the dwelling place of monks. So you've got, you've got Christians, you've got Druids, you've got this lake where the Lady of the Lake is, you've got this ancient village on this mountainside. And then up the mountain, when you look in the survey maps, you can see the faint outline of an old Roman fortress. So you've got this old fortress on this hill and the story, you know, kind of, kind of the geography helped write the story as well. And I, that that's kind of where it all began. You said at the beginning that the Stephen Lawhead series, which, which it's fun to hear about that because that's been in the news recently, they're going to be creating a, um, a streaming series based on that at the daily wire. But you, you said that that really opened your eyes to what fantasy can do. So mm-hmm. what, what were some of your first uh, thoughts about that? Like, what, what do you mean by that, like about what fantasy can do? As I researched more, I began to be able to articulate that a little more because my early thoughts were a little muddled, I'm sure. But it comes down to, um, and I think this is a quote from Lewis. So sometimes Lewis and, and Tolkien's um, <laughs> thoughts get, get a little muddled in my brain, but I, I think this was Lewis where he, he, he speaks about stories being able to get past our watchful dragons. And by that, he means that you can communicate truth to people that they would normally put up their guard against and not want to listen to you. But you can, you can communicate truth and it can slip in deeper than it would have if you were trying to use some intellectual argument um, by, by telling a story, which harkens back to Jesus telling parables. Um, that, that by telling a parable, he was able to drive home points to people that intellectually they would have just not even listened to and walked away probably if he had just tried to lay out some intellectual argument. But by like, like telling, telling the story of the prodigal son, he just put a knife in the heart of, of the Pharisees at the time, which would have followed certain, I'm kind of actually, I'm mixing two stories there, but, but the, um, yeah, the prodigal son story of, of not, not receiving those who are seeking forgiveness 
stories like that turn up uh, iconic, uh, whether it's a biblical parable, a uh, biblical narrative, uh, or a uh, legend from uh, UK's possibly legitimate history. Uh, I like how you tell the story. I've, I've heard it before about you forging the sword. In fact, I got to tell you, this little mini series we're doing on the podcast is partly inspired by that. We're calling it Forging Fantasy uh, because we cool. just so happen to have uh, several guests in a row uh, who are creating fantasy in, in different ways, uh, not just uh, on the printed page, but with a TV series or an ancient uh, poem from the 1590s uh, now brought forward into a, into a prose adaptation. Uh, and then you, of course, uh, with uh, not just the Merlin Spiral series uh, or the forging of the sword. Uh, in fact, the very sword that appears uh, on the covers, uh, but also this uh, this audiobook version. Uh, you said that just came out, I think, within the last uh, couple of months. Uh, it's kind of a kind of reborn there. Uh, all three books of the Merlin Spiral series. Yes, and and uh, the narrator that one of the, we were given three choices of narrator. One of them was Simon Bubb, who's a, who's a fantastic British. Um, voice actor um, who has who has done some of Stephen Lawhead's novels, his Bright Empire series. And when we heard him and heard him do different languages and accents, and he was just really good. And I knew we needed that for my series because I've got, you know, Cornish speaking people. I've got Picts. I've got, Nor you know, people from Norway. I've got Scots. I've got, you know, Germanic peoples. And there's a whole lot of different voices. And I have lots of characters. And, and he does a great job differentiating the voices. And and it's just fantastic to to hear it in an English accent too. And Americans, a lot of Americans reading my novels, they can sometimes not hear the, a British accent. And and part of that is because I did actually didn't try too hard to do that because um, you know my books are from 400, 500 AD, and so that accent didn't exist back then. So I, I wasn't necessarily trying to recreate a British accent. However, it it does give a feel when the when Simon Bob reads it, that this is a British novel. So, and people like that. And I think that adds to it. And the novels have a lot of Welsh names, a lot of Welsh place names, um, a lot of things that could trip readers up. But when it's read to you, all that disappears. And I have a lot of poetry. I've got songs, I've got prayers, I've got things that, that sometimes a reader might also trip over. Like some people skip over Tolkien songs, say, but when it's read, it's it's just so much easier. You know, you don't feel the oh, this is you know <laughs> something I want to skip over. You just listen to it, and it's and it you know comes across in a, in a much more beautiful, natural way. So I'm really enjoying the you know the audiobooks. I think that's especially valuable for the Welsh names, as you mentioned. There was a, a joke a little while back about the longest Welsh city name. And maybe it's the longest name in the world, and I'm not even going to try it. It's like starts with LL something, and uh, th there's this viral video of the weatherman like pronouncing it perfectly, and it's probably like 28 <laughs> syllables or something. But uh, supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, yeah, only with exactly. more apostrophes thrown in the middle of it. Yeah, and a, and a lot of different and different um, phonetic sounds in there too, like uh, you know, yeah. and there's just <laughs> it's very different language and uh and that actually was a challenge in research in my novels but at the same time i began writing my daughter my oldest daughter began writing and she started learning gaelic and welsh and so she actually was able to help me and assist me in the writing process and um be, because of that and she actually added added a lot of um, a lot of historical details to the novels as well through her own research so that that was kind of a neat thing 
We'll, of course, have all of those links to the Merlin Spiral series, uh, the original print books, as well as the new audiobooks in our show notes for this episode. Arthurian legends and all of those fantasy tropes have informed so many newer stories ever since they started uh, back in the medieval times, including our second sponsor for this episode, the Catrosi Revolution series from author Jamie Foley. This epic fantasy series starts with Emberhawk, but book two, Silverblood, won the General Fantasy Award at the Realmakers Conference last July 2022. If you enjoy the political intrigue of Game of Thrones or Lord of the Rings, but with an emphasis on deep characters and romance throughout the adventure, this is the series for you. Imagine what the American Revolution would have been like if the native tribes had allied with the settlers to fight off the British. Except the natives can manipulate light and sound with magic, and the Queen of England is a water elemental who fancies herself a goddess. Book one, Emberhawk, is available now in hardcover, paperback, audiobook, and every ebook format at emberhawk.com. That's book one of the Catrosi Revolution series, continuing with book two, Silverblood. Go to the show notes for episode 147 or to lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors to learn more. Robert, I want to move then to chapter two of our discussion just about the uh, King Arthur and Knights of the Roundtable uh, legends uh, before you got to them. Uh, for many folks, I think uh, this has turned into the realm of parody. These legends, uh, these tales have been around for so long that then you get uh, Monty Python and the search for the Holy Grail kind of sending up the whole Camelot myth. Uh, of course, there was that, uh, I think it was a Broadway musical of the time that they were spoofing. It also got compared to the Kennedy family back then in the 1960s. So this is parody for some people. It's also an opportunity for modernization for others. Uh, when we last heard from me on our predecessor website, uh, you are reviewing uh, the 2017 movie by Guy Ritchie, King Arthur, colon, Legend of the Sword. Very basic title there. Uh, few remember this. Uh, it did not do very well. Um, who is the actor there? Um, it was a Char a Charlie, um, Charlie's Charlie Hunnam, I think, uh, playing yes. Arthur. Yep. And a very, uh, very modern-ish version, like the clothing looked modern. They were doing something artistic with it. And uh, apparently a lot of folks didn't get it. You saw it. I think you liked it better than some. Uh, but you've also mentioned uh, Excalibur and some of these more formative stories. Uh, is King Arthur hard to get right in a movie? Or the King Arthur legends like Merlin and Lancelot and all of them? It's it's very hard, partially because of all the parodies that are out there. Um, even the movie Excalibur, in a way, um, kind of throws things off um, from um, from from what might be a, a true historical King Arthur. Um, you know, this is King Arthur dates back to not the Middle Ages, but the post-Roman era. Rome had just left Britain. Um, Britain was left vulnerable. The Saxons come in and invade. They want to take over. And one of the problems is that we don't have a lot of his history, of, of true history of what actually happened. And some of the sources that should have named King Arthur did not name him, but instead just spoke about a Duke of Battles, um, a Dux Bellorum. And then later on, he was named as King Arthur. And so there, you know, there's, there's a major question of whether King Arthur is even historical. Um, so, so the lack of real detail sources from the actual time period make it difficult. For people to get right and so people end up with you know one form of parody or another whether they're even trying to or not and then um, everyone assumes like merlin is a magician 
say, but if you go back to the original Welsh legend, he's more of a prophet, um, more of a, um, you know, more of a bard and a prophet than he is a, a wizard in the modern sense of a, of a Disney wizard, say. So Merlin may not have worn the pointy hat and carried a staff. That's Gandalf, but Gandalf <laughs> may have been based on some of these archetypes. Zach mentioned earlier that uh, Daily Wire Plus uh, says they're adapting uh, Stephen Lawhead's The Pendragon Cycle uh, into a streaming series, uh, a streaming no, I am movie. Really excited we about that. Don't know. Okay, I, I wonder if you've heard anything about that because when they announced it, it was late last year. It was the CEO, and just for the folks who are not familiar with the company, or maybe they are very familiar, um, it 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 is a conservative pundit company. They do news and commentary from a particular uh, social political perspective, fairly described as being on the right. And some of them can get kind of rowdy on their podcast. And I, I enjoy some of those. But it makes you wonder then, like, is this a good match to do a King Arthur movie? But Jeremy Boring, the CEO of the company, apparently has a, a strong personal uh, love for Lawhead's series, uh, similar to what you've described. Uh, in, in my opinion, uh, he mentioned that they were going to do an Ayn Rand thing. Uh, if you're into that sort of thing. Uh, but then when he really wanted to talk about it, it seemed to me, uh, was the Stephen R. Lawhead series. And uh, by the way, he recently had a video talking about this whole thing with another pundit who was accusing them of stuff. And you could see on uh, the uh, the CEO's desk copies of uh, the uh, the Pendragon books. So why did you enjoy those, Robert? Uh, and why are you uh, uh, interested in what they'll do uh, turning that into a series, uh, whether or not it's this year, like like they said it might be? Well, that was my first, um, Stephen Lawhead's novels were my first um, exposure to a more historical Arthur um, based in the post-Roman Britain era. And when I first started reading them, I was shocked to find that out, that, that when it was taking place, or, you know, around 500 AD, because um, I expected it to be like 1500 or 1200 AD or something like this. And um, so... So Lawhead takes a very historical approach, mixing in, but, but he's mixing in legends of Atlantis. He's mixing in um, Welsh legends, and he's kind of bringing everything together in, in a very fascinating way. And the books are just amazing, and they open my eyes. And when I began writing, it was actually I had to avoid following the this a lot of the typical stories because I didn't want to copy Lawhead. I I, I couldn't copy him. I had to create my own. Um, legends, my own version of the of the tales, and so so because of that, if you read my novels, you'll find they're vastly different from Lawhead's. Um, there, there's obviously some similarities, but um, I I've taken a very different path um, with the legends and had a little more fun, a little more creativity. I haven't followed Jeffrey of Monmouth or Sir Thomas Mallory as as closely, um, but I've I've still kept things very historical is, is and I still mix in fantastic things and different legends and i give a lot of nods to different parts of the legend well i recently finished reading uh c.s lewis's that hideous strength the third book in the ransom trilogy space trilogy depending potato potato awesome. how you want to say it There's the surprise sequel to both the merlin spiral series and the yeah. pendragon cycle series <laughs> <laughs> the unsanctioned yeah. sequel by c.s lewis <laughs> yeah and you know i i went into it expecting a straight sci-fi and i i understood from some chatter about it that this is about a you know technocratic society trying to take over civilization remake it in the image of uh, a very godless kind of man and 
Uh, oh, and by the way, there's some some spiritual warfare involved. And by the way, Merlin shows up. <laughs> yeah. Spoiler and, alert. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I was discussing this book with some friends and we're like, is this even sci-fi? Because, or is it science fantasy or is it just fantasy? Like, what is, what is this? this? And so, and I was really surprised by the way Merlin acts in this book. And I'm, Oh yeah, I won't give, I mean, I, mm-hmm. I could say spoiler alert, but the book's been around for long enough. Now you're, you're nodding your head. Like, have, have you read this book? What did you think yes, of Merlin yes. in, in that book? C.S. Lewis is bringing Merlin into that hideous strength is a, is a fun um, kind of an amazing thing that he did. And, and a nod to Britain's history. And also, um, you know, the, the King Arthur legends always have this, the once, you know, the phrase, the once and future King, well, Merlin has to be there too. So, so, you know, for, for, for Lewis to, to bring Merlin into the modern era was a fun thing. Law had actually did that um, in a, in one of his later novels as well, where he jumps into the, the present day and has Merlin is still alive. He's an old man now, but he's still alive from the original series. and. And uh, and and he puts a new Arthur on the throne of Britain, and kind of mm-hmm. does that in a in kind of, kind of an amazing way. It was pretty. It was a fun novel, creative. Um, so in you know in in Lewis's spirit and in Lawhead's spirit on that novel, um, it's one of the cool things about King Arthur and these legends is that they're not copyrighted. You know, no, no one can write Harry Potter novels without without being taken to court, but you can sure do that with with King Arthur. And Merlin, and you can have have some fun with those legends. So, yeah, my my favorite part of Merlin coming into the 20th century in Lewis's book is that he's with these group of people, and he's like, "Wow, I slept like a king, but then I had to dress myself like a peasant." And there there's hot water, and there's electricity, and it all seems like so magical, you know. And you have these plates that are just amazing, pristine, but then you have this horrible <laughs> horrid food that you're putting on them and so just like the the contrast that he sees of of modern life and and how it, how it seems so magical but so ordinary to everyone that was really interesting and it just kind of gives you that that different lens to look at uh, the 20th wow. century life i really need to go back and reread uh, that hideous strength uh, of lewis's works i think it's the one that i've only read once I've re- uh, reread the first two books of the Ransom trilogy several times, but that hideous strength just kind of escaped me. Uh, maybe I was expecting a book set on another world, but uh, there's a lot of relevant ideas there, and particularly this collision that Lewis uh, forces between uh, pre-Christian Europe. Uh, Merlin is kind of this pagan figure, but hey, it's at least closer to Christianity than the nasty secularism uh, that the uh, folks are confronting in that hideous strength. Uh, Robert, I'm curious. Uh, we we haven't uh, gone over specifically like the plot of the Merlin Spiral series. I'm wondering if you could just uh, recap uh, how uh, Merlin's blade starts out, and and then let us know that if it's possible for us to squint and make that uh, series uh, in continuity with anything by Lawhead or some of these other uh, Arthurian adaptations. No, it um, it kind of stands on its own, and I I just have taken a different approach, and I'm I'm still revealing secrets that are planted in the first, you know, I planned out six books from the very beginning. So I'm, I'm able to foreshadow in book one, things are going to happen in book six, things like this. Um, so that's been kind of fun to be able to do that. But um, so, so, so back to me laying in bed, thinking about the sword and the stone and the stone's alive and in some way, and you're trying to kill it. Well, 
what can a stone do? You're holding, you know, it's a rock, okay? So I came up with, okay, so the stone glows, and anyone who sees its glow becomes enchanted by it. And so the druids are using this stone to enchant the people. And, um, and then where does the stone come from? Well, in, in researching the, this, little, this little area, um, this Dozemary Pool, which is where the Lady of the Lake is, it turns out that this, uh, there's actually an ancient Cornish poem about this lake. It basically, about its uniqueness, it, 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 the Cornish poem says something like, no stream fills it and neither does the stream leave it or something like this. It's kind of like a lake, just kind of like a hole in the ground. And so it, it turns out that astrophysicists think that this lake was formed by a meteorite. At some point in the, in the history Sometime in the past, some meteorite came down and crashed into this place and formed, formed a crater, which then filled it with water. And so that's how the, that was a perfect origin for the stone. It is actually a meteor from outer space. So in, that, in some sense, my novels are actually science fiction. You can mm. think of it that way. Uh, there's this cultural, um, you know, at this time of Britain, Christianity has been established throughout most of Britain began in Ireland with Patrick. You know, there was there was smatterings of Christianity throughout Britain before, but then Patrick was taken as a slave to Ireland, came back, um, received training in France, decided to go back to to Ireland and can, you know, and and be a missionary to the people that had enslaved him. Well, all of Ireland became Christian and then Ireland began sending missionaries over to Britain. And so the first missionaries to Cornwall were from were actually from Ireland, and I actually have have a have a song about that in Merlin's Blade. The Romans also didn't like the Druids. The Druids were kind of the, the priests, the the physicists, the scientists, the philosophers of the age, and the Romans didn't like them. And 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 so the Romans came and slaughtered the, many of them, and they they went to their sacred isle and cut down all the sacred groves and burned everything. And so, so the Druids kind of got a double whammy. Christianity came over from Ireland and took over the whole island. Um, like St. Columba went to, to Scotland and we had missionaries in, in, you know, in the main part of Britain. And then the Romans had, had decimated the Druids as well. So at the time when my novel starts, the Druids are very much weak. And so the stone appears. And so it would make sense that they would want to use it to try to regain their power. And so a lot of the novel of Merlin's Blade is a cultural clash, um, which is very similar to what's happening today in many ways. There's, you know, there, there's a major cultural clash going on. And so, um, so readers can find, even, even though this is ancient, um, readers can still find some similarities to, to the modern day. And I think that that's one of the power of, of fiction that we were talking about, is that you can find um, courage through reading um, fiction. Um, one of the things that, that I tried to do was to make Merlin a normal human, um, to make him ha have disabilities and so um, and doubts and fears like anyone, and so that people could relate to him. I didn't want him to be a superhero. And some people haven't liked my novels because I didn't make him a superhero, but that's kind of, I guess, neither here nor there at this point. But the stone then enchants anyone who sees it. Well, how could Merlin? What can I do with Merlin that would make him immune to the stone? Well, I can make it so that he can't see the stone. So I made him half blind, which I actually didn't want to do because Lawhead has a, has a period of his novels, his King Arthur novels, where Merlin is blind for a brief period 
And um, it's a little not really explained well why he goes blind or explained well how he gets his sight back. And it doesn't have a major impact on the novels. But I wanted to avoid it because of that. But I, my story just called for it, that, that Merlin's greatest weakness could become his greatest strength. And that he was the only one in this village who was immune to the enchantment of the stone because he couldn't see it. Uh, the High King comes to the village just trying to, um, he's trying to check out the beacon which is on the, on the hill fort. They had beacons in Cornwall, very similar to Lord of the Rings, where they had the, the beacons on the mountaintops. And the Romans had the same kind of system across Britain. So he, he, he's coming to recruit men. He's coming to check out the beacon. And he's coming to visit Gorlos on, on uh, modern-day Tintagel. And, um, and so now we have the High King. We have the Druids. And this clash happens. And so that kind of sets up the end of the novel. And what happens there? And by the end of the novel, setting up book two, Arthur is on is on the run. Um, actually, no, Merlin's on the run, protecting Arthur. Arthur's just two years old, and that sets up Merlin's shadow. Um, and so they travel north, and they end up being slaves of the Picts. They end up then going much further than even Scotland to save Arthur's life as well. So I don't want to give away Merlin's shadow much, but uh, Merlin's Shadow I describe as um, one desperate journey, two choices, because Morgana or his is trying to make a decision too whether she's going to, you're actually kind of following, following her journey as well through Merlin's Shadow. And um, she has to make a choice what she's going to do with her life, whether she's going to um, follow the Druids and, and, and want to destroy Merlin or, or, or change from that that path. And then Merlin is dealing with doubt because of his suffering. And then Britain's future hangs in the balance of those decisions that are made in that novel. And then Merlin's Nightmare. I know you guys, this is just audio, but I've got the books here. So <laughs> um, Merlin's Nightmare takes place 16 years later. Arthur's now grown and I'm, I'm transitioning to Arthur being the main character then, setting up the Pendragon spiral which is, uh, I'm still working on Arthur's Blade, working, writing the last battle right now. So It takes discernment to sort all of the meanings of Merlin. What do you do about wizards? What do you do about the Arthurian legends? How does this longing for a king reflect our longing for King Jesus? And where are some of the idols that sneak in, even to these old legends and to the newer adaptations of fantasy? Which brings me to our third sponsor, it'd be me once more. The nonfiction book with the dragon on the cover, The Pop Culture Parent. I got to co-author this resource with my uh, co-authors Ted Turneau and Jared Moore, released a few years ago. But oh, how it matters now to engage popular culture with an eye toward training your children. Popular culture is a messy mix of common grace themes, truths, and beauties and goodness that can only get there because God has made the universe that these storytellers are playing in but also idols uh, doing a Genesis study at my church. And we are going through Genesis three now about the fall popular culture has some good stuff in it, but it is also fallen a human hearts take these good things. God has put in the world and we are fulfilling our calling to make stories using God's stuff, but we are twisting these ideas into idols that serve our selfishness rather than glorify God. But popular culture should start out as an act of worship and conversations that we can have one with another. It takes discernment. It takes biblical worldview to train your kids to ask what we recommend five questions to go through any item of popular culture. You adapt them for younger kids, older kids, or teenagers, depending on their age appropriate level. 
That's what we train you to do in the Pop Culture Parent from New Growth Press. You can get more information about this nonfiction resource in the show notes for episode 147 or go to lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors. So I, it's been a while since we've spoken, Robert, and uh, I, I sort of got told as if for the first time that there will be then three more books, but I now know that it is a different series name. So we've had the Merlin Spiral, but now we have the Pendragon Spiral, and it's sort yes. of a sequel trilogy then that you're working on? Yes. In fact, it picks up just two hours after the end of Merlin's Nightmare. So they're, okay. they're kind of kind of cheek by jowl, the series, um, perfect continuity. And again, I don't want to give anything away, but um, the the Pendragon spiral is from Arthur's perspective, um, which was actually hard to transition away from Merlin. I mean, he's still involved in everything, but you're not in his head very much compared to Arthur. But Arthur is is a, a little more of a reckless, go get him kind of a kind of a person, and so that that dynamic gives a different feel to the novels. But I, I had to decide at the very beginning of the Pendragon Spiral, what is this? What is this three book series? And I, and I came down to that it's it's ultimately a love story between Arthur and Guinevere. You know, there's all the action of you know as as much as as in as in the Merlin Spiral, but. But I begin with their relationship and I will end with their relationship and, you know, in the novels and it will play a major role throughout all three novels. So, you know, we've got werewolves and dragons and everything else mixed in and Morgana and major battles with the Saxons and, um, you know, the picks coming in and and we've got um, Excalibur. Um, what's going on with there? We have the quest for the Holy Grail in book five. Um, a lot of amazing things, but I, I had to ask that question ultimately when it comes down to what is the arc, what is the beginning and what is the end? And I did something very unique with Guinevere. Guinevere has all sorts of, as many interpretations as Merlin or Arthur has, but I chose to make Guinevere and her sister and father and brother, the equivalent of gypsies. So they are descended from the first peoples that would have been that would have um, inhabited Britain um, before the before the British or the Celtic peoples came, and so they speak a different language, they have a different culture, they have different values, and so this naturally this cultural clash between Arthur and Guinevere creates a lot of interest in their relationship um, and a lot of a lot of differences. Um, think of the um, um, have you ever heard of the Travelers? Irish travelers. It, it's modern gypsies in the modern world. They're actually in America even. And they, you know, they have their own culture, they have their own language, they have they they travel around in cars. You can think of it like the modern travelers back in those times. I call them walkers. So Guinevere is a walker and and her father is a is a, a giant. He's a very big, not a literal giant, but he's a very big man. And there's a legend of that, of Guinevere being the daughter of Gogur Fan Gower, um, who, who was a giant who Arthur had to fight. And so I kind of bring Gogi in, Gogur Fan, into the legend, and also um, Guinevere's sister, Gwenivach. A lot of people don't know what Guinevere means. Gwenna would mean white or fair, and Vir means greater. Gwenivach is basically fair or white, the lesser. So you have Gwenny the Greater and Gwenny the Lester. You have two sisters. And so I, I include Gwenevach in the legend as well. And, and that, um, that will 
bring a lot of interest into the into the storyline. Taking us to school here, Robert. So a giant like a Nephilim, because you know, no Nephilim, no more, <laughs> no, please. <laughs> I'd rather talk about the Arthurian legends, uh, which have more specific relation to Christianity. Over, it's just a genre preference there. But in your case, Robert, the books are already being written for the next series, The Pendragon Spiral. Uh, do you have any titles or pending titles that you would want to reveal? Uh, any particular publication sure. dates or even years that you can uh, talk about as we discuss what's next for the next next for the series? Arthur's Blade. I, again, I'm, I'm writing. The, I'm writing. The, I'm on to the last final battle. So it's a great novel. Um, Merlin's Nightmare, the third novel from the the Merlin Spiral, got a little dark. Gets a little dark. They're fighting werewolves. Uh, <laughs> And it's, you know, just the title Merlin's Nightmare kind of kind of reveals that. Well, Arthur's Blade, which is the first book of the Pendragon Spiral, is a little lighter again. You know, there's a lot of bad stuff that happens, but it's not it's not quite of a horror novel as, as say, Merlin's Nightmare was. And there's just a lot of fun that happens, um, a lot of a lot of um, interesting, fun things that happen. I, I use the word fun, not the way the world does, I guess. But um Stuff to keep the reader turning the pages. It's more like Merlin's Blade than than Merlin's Nightmare. So it's it you know it's the beginning of a series. I, I try to assume the reader's coming in knowing nothing and um, setting everything up, giving nods to the legends throughout. And and again, there's a love story there, and everything that could go wrong goes wrong between Arthur and Guinevere. Absolutely, everything falls apart, and. Um, Guinevere goes off one direction, Arthur goes off another direction, and yet they come back together at the end of the novel for this final battle um, against Morgana and what happens there. Um, and I'm bringing in a fun little legend. Have you guys, have you ever heard of the Sword of St. Saint, of Saint Michael or, or Michael the Angel? Yes, just recently there was a meme that got around about someone supposedly trying to steal a statue of that, and then he ended up uh, getting trapped by the sword or something like that. He got so, impaled by it. He got yeah. impaled by Okay, so yeah, so it gets a little darker in this meme. <laughs> <laughs> well, what I'm talking about is something a little different. There, There's a strange phenomenon of like seven different holy sites that are in a straight line from Ireland all the way to Israel. And they're all named after St. Michael. There are like seven of them in a straight line. So they call that the Sword of St. Michael. And, and one of them is St. Michael's Mount in Cornwall. There's a St. Michael's Mount in France as well. Very similar. It's spelled a little differently, but that's, that's essentially the name. And then you remember from Star Wars, the, the more recent movies, where they, where they, the place where they filmed Luke Skywalker's home? Yes, Act Two or some yeah, Act Two or something. I think they call yeah. it. It's an, it's an Irish Isle or Scottish it's Isle. It's an Irish Isle, and, it, and it's yeah. again, it's a Saint. My it's dedicated to it's a monastery oh, dedicated wow. to Saint Michael. There, fascinating. That, that's another one, and then there's these other ones all the way to the Middle East. So it's kind of a fascinating thing. I'm actually bringing that little that legend into the story as well because the this final battle takes place in Saint Michael's Mount in Cornwall. Okay, so some thematic uh, mythological referencing there. Do you have a release year, month, date for Arthur's Blade? Arthur's Blade should be released this year by the end of the okay. year. Okay, twenty twenty three. Okay, all right. We'll, we'll we'll not necessarily hold you to that, but uh, we will be on the lookout for that. I'm I'm close enough where I think that's a reality. Book five is going to be called Pendragon's Blood. My first use of the actual word Pendragon. Okay, 
Well, I, I love that this series, like you said, this is for someone that doesn't know anything about the Arthur legends, goes into it not knowing anything. And it's a great introduction and a way to get into the legend. Because yeah, as you said, there's so many different interpretations that it can be a little intimidating to try to look into this a little bit. Like like I said, even with Lewis's Merlin, you know, there, there's there's so much that Lewis was trying to put in there. I'm like, how do I even decipher any of this? Because Lewis has obviously done a ton of homework on, on Merlin. So, um, and I felt like I just got thrown into the deep end <laughs> with everything they're saying about the Pendragon and Logris. And I'm like, what is all this? So I, I love your approach of just kind of welcoming people into the legend. And then uh, book six is called Morgana's Hour. Oh, okay. So focusing on our villain here, uh, Zach, what's interesting there to me is that I was first introduced to uh, Morgana, uh, I guess, Morgan the Fay, same same difference uh, because she's also a DC villain. Uh, she has literally also fought the Justice League uh, in the animated series. So uh, you get the comics, you get the modern stories, uh, borrowing uh, liberally from these legends. And once you see these archetypes and these specific uh, historical characters popping up in other people's appropriations, uh, you can't unsee them. Uh, in fact, uh, actually, Zack Snyder was deeply influenced by the movie Excalibur. Uh, he actually has it uh, cameo at the beginning of, of Batman v Superman. It's it's the new movie uh, that Bruce Wayne went to see uh, before his parents were killed. So everybody loves their take on that. So <laughs> we got titles for all three books of the uh, the Pendragon Spiral series. Uh, not necessarily dates, but where can people follow you, Robert, then uh, to track your writing progress uh, your research about these things uh, and get any more information as these release dates draw nigh the best place is my blog which is epictales.org epictales.org of course all those links in the show notes i'm looking forward to this especially with the audiobook i've set some aggressive reading goals via audiobook and print books uh, for this year long before the New Year's Day, so it's not got that uh, New Year's resolution stigma attached. And so far, I've managed to clear several of those, several of those goals. So I'm going to try to get the, uh, the Merlin Spiral series of audiobooks uh, worked into those reading goals, too. Perhaps we'll uh, have one of those featured in the Lorehaven Guild book quest sometime. It sounds like a perfect uh, introduction to these legends that are so fundamental uh, to Christendom as well. I think that's one reason why we see Christians uh, resonating so much with these because this is our history, uh, not just the history of the church, but uh, the history of fantastical stories. It's all tied in once you get into the spread of Christianity in the British Isles and all of these uh, Druid legends and these mythological creatures that get mixed in. This is in our DNA as the capital C church. And you see Merlin, kind of a type of a forerunner, maybe like a Melchizedek type figure. You get Arthur as a type of Christ. Everybody likes finding uh, these reflections of King Jesus in the once and future king, as well as the previous king, King David, as well as all these other uh, Old Testament kings. Uh, anything you like about a king points to Jesus. Anything you don't like about a king points to sinful man. But we get to look forward to the return, not of Arthur, although wouldn't that be great to actually have King Arthur reigning over Britain in the new heavens and new earth uh, <laughs> if he was a real person, uh, but King Jesus reigning over the entire universe with everybody else as a king or queen under him. 
Robert, thank you so much for riding into the studio. Uh, I hope the chariot parking was to your liking, uh, and I look forward to seeing what's next for the Pendragon cycle series to come. Thank you all very much, and I, I appreciate being here. And um, just want to clarify, Lawheads is Pendragon cycle. My, my next one is Pendragon Spiral. Pendragon Spiral. There you yep. go. Yep. There you go. But, but everyone should be looking out for Stephen Lawhead's movies coming out um, of, of his Pendragon cycle. That is, I'm absolutely um, amazed that that's happening. And it gives me hope that maybe 20 years from now, some young young boy who's reading my books now will grow up and, and want to make mine in a movie. So. Either way, more Arthurian goodness to come. Our thanks to Robert for joining us today for the interview. I like to point Stephen about how fantasy gives us that chance for watchful dragons to be snuck past, that we can have truth in stories. And of course, that's what we're all about on this podcast. And so to you, our listener, I would love to know what are some truths that you have found through the King Arthur and Merlin stories that this is not necessarily my fandom. So I'm not too familiar with how these stories portray truth. And of course, it's about a a Christian king, King Arthur, uh, at least in legend. And so there's a lot you could talk about there, but uh, I would love to hear from you. So send us a note to podcast at lorehaven.com or tag us on social media and let us know how you have discovered truth in these fantastical stories. Make sure you subscribe at lorehaven.com as well. That's the best way to get all of our content that is coming out. Uh, Increasingly, Zach, are able to have Something new almost every weekday of the week at lorehaven.com. The new podcasts on Tuesdays, uh, articles on Thursdays, and then new book reviews of exclusively Christian-made fantastical or sci-fi books, any of those kinds of books on Fridays. That brings me to our Lorehaven mission update. Last week, we had Elijah David's article about the magician's nephew, a very personal, a very well thought out, and by which I mean that I was weeping some manly tears during the editing process because he was talking about Aslan's line to Diggory and the magician's nephew, that grief is great and that only Aslan and Diggory at that point in the newly created world of Narnia know that for a fact. Really great reflection there. One of the best articles we've had, I think. Friday, we had our review of a book called A Crown of Chains. It's one of our Friday reviews. Uh, coming up, moving into February, uh, we have just finished our book quest for Prince Caspian in the Lorehaven Guild, which is our exclusive uh, Discord fan community that you can access by subscribing at lorehaven.com. Uh, on February the 1st, uh, Tisha, our book quest guide, is starting our next book quest for a book called Rose Petals and Snowflakes. Uh, very uh, seasonal selection there. Uh, it is a combination Jane Austen-like story with a fairy tale retelling. You can get more information, all these links in our show notes uh, for the Lorehaven Guild book quests. Uh, Also on February the 1st, uh, registration is opening for those of you who want to make fantasy, not just read it. Uh, Registration is opening for the Realm Makers 2023 conference in St. Louis. You'll be hearing more about that during a sponsored segment coming up here on the show. But we also will have the news there at the website, uh, hopefully on that date, uh, Wednesday, February the 1st. After that, uh, we've got a new article. Uh, Jenneth Dyke, who's been doing a lot of the awesome uh, imagery for our social media pages, uh, turns out she can write a great article too. So her debut at Lorehaven is going to be about the authentic diversity in The Chosen, but how it acts quite a little different uh, than some of our expectations about diversity and inclusion in uh, TV shows. And of course, we're chosen fans here largely, and we're going to have a positive take on that. 
a little bit more about that coming up. And then on uh, Friday, February the 3rd, we have a review of a military sci-fi novel called Into the Darkness by Charles uh, Hack. Always love seeing some uh, military sci-fi soldiers in space over in the review space at Lorehaven. Hey, speaking of space travel, uh, our comm station's lit up over here. Uh, let's go over and see uh, some of the notes that we got in. Yeah, so in response to Josiah's article, How Christians Can Discern Jesus' Adaptations in the Chosen and Other Stories, Cole Powell left a comment that said, quote, Although I haven't yet finished season one of The Chosen, I find this article a reasonable, well-articulated perspective on the issue of biblical fiction in general. Thanks for posting, end quote. Yeah, I really love Josiah's article, Stephen. I totally agree with this comment. I like how Josiah brought in, uh, you know, the, the, the biggest controversy I think so far is Jesus not healing James. And I think it's a great portrayal of what the, the verse Josiah linked to, 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10, where, where Paul talks about a thorn in his flesh that he asked Jesus to remove and Jesus did not and said, my grace is sufficient for you. So I, I think that is exactly what was being portrayed in the episode. And man, that is a difficult truth. And I, I think more than anything, fans are wrestling with the scene because we're wrestling with the issue of not being healed or delayed healing or things happening and not our timing. That is a very hard struggle. My sympathies for everyone that is, that is waiting on a healing. But I think that the episode handled it with care is well as anyone could in a supposal of what Jesus would do. Helen Roth also remarked on that article, really grateful for this post, Josiah. Put into words what I couldn't put together in my brain. I also can't join the discussion because I'm not a watcher yet, but it's still good to have this information. And a little later she wrote, it's not really my type of show at all, but I've been convinced I must try it anyway, so it's on my list. You know, it's funny. I'm actually a big fan of biblical fiction done right. Uh, there's a few movies that have gotten it right, uh, like Risen, uh, kind of an informal sequel before they made the actual sequel to The Passion of the Christ that deals with the Roman soldier investigating the disappearance of Jesus' body. Uh, Passion of the Christ is pretty good, but, uh, you know, watch it once and then that's enough times, I think. And of course, it's, uh, it's very Catholic, so it calls for some discernment by those of us who uh, build our churches on the other side of the Tiber. But I would say that The Chosen is one of the best biblical fiction series uh, for the, several reasons. But among those, Zach, what you just mentioned uh, is they have a serious view of their responsibility. And we may talk about this more in our next episode, uh, hint, hint. But I'm now perfectly fine with that scene uh, with the character of little James. Of course, it's not mentioned in the Gospels or whether any of the disciples themselves got healing. Uh, for a, a physical disability or some other condition. Could it have happened, though? It's absolutely within the realm of plausibility. Uh, as Jenneth points out in her article, uh, there's more going on there because the actor who plays little James uh, has a condition that needed to be addressed uh, in-universe. And yet, I, I think it is biblical then uh, for a Jesus to look at someone and say, I could heal you, but wouldn't it be better right now if I didn't? Uh, wouldn't this not bring more glory to God? Uh, that fits with what we know of the biblical Jesus, where he said, yes, this man was born blind, not because someone sinned, but in order to bring glory to the Father. Uh, similarly, the disciples and others are asking Jesus, aren't you going to go and heal Lazarus? And Jesus intentionally delays, intentionally delays. And that is so mean. 
Uh, why would Jesus do that? Is he not a, a, a savior of love? Well, love can take many different forms uh, based on the story that our divine author has for us. And I think if you're watching The Chosen, you're seeing these healings brought to life uh, more so uh, than even uh, reading about them in uh, the true gospels in the Bible. Uh, that can awaken a lot of feelings. Um, man, I really wish Jesus was here now. I really wish I could get healed. I really wish my relative, my friend, uh, my husband or wife could have been healed. Why didn't Jesus heal? It, is he not still healing? And then you see this fictional version of Jesus kind of help to address that. And it's just, I think it's a great way to be responsible with some of the longings uh, that a very well done presentation like that can bring up in us. And then it needs to be answered biblically, like you said, with the thorn of the flesh uh, or with a, with a fictional portrayal like that. I think this is a great discussion that Christians are having because it's really forcing us to go to the scriptures and say, is this biblically faithful? What does the scripture say about this? And Josiah mentions, like, let's be like the Bereans and, and go to that. I think let's assume good faith on the part of the filmmakers. I, th there's enough that they have put out there that I trust them, that, that they are being careful and faithful. Uh, but, you know, uh, Dallas Jenkins said on another podcast that, look, some of these issues people have been wrestling with for 2,000 years. Uh, so this is my take on it through a television show. Uh, but, you know, we can all give our take on this and, and debate. I, I think what pains me, Stephen, is that Dallas and, and others on the show are just being tossed out, you know, and, and just being completely written off as though they don't care about the scripture. And I, I think that's a really lazy way to critique. I, I think it's fine to dis disagree, though. Uh, there are some things in the show that maybe I don't totally agree with, like some of the more modern language and and uh expressions. Well, that's a stumbling it's block like, to people. Yeah, yeah. clockwork, for example, yeah, which is right. kind of funny because there's at least one uh, translation, the King James Version, uh, which at one point had the phrase fetched a compass uh, oh, to mean like go by a circuitous route. Yes. And like there were no compasses back then. <laughs> translation is always going right. to insert some modern terms and, and that can that can just make people stumble artistically, even if not spiritually. Zach, this article from Josiah, and uh, I can go ahead and say with some measure of confidence, uh, Jenith's article as well, got a lot of comments on our social media. We thought about trying to handle those here in the comm station, but you know, we just need a whole episode to work through these. And that's next on Fantastical Truth. The chosen biblical drama series is headed back to theaters to conclude season three. Haven't got my tickets, am going to. Somehow this season above all, though, We've seen a lot more criticism of the show. Zach, folks have been blocking me on social media in their determination to spread some of the myths that they have heard about The Chosen and some of the bad doctrines that they're spreading about the purpose of fiction altogether. Uh, are these creators trying to replace the true Jesus with a TV Jesus? Uh, are they not adding to scripture and uh, supplanting the local church? And of course, yes, I'm going to go here. Is this Mormon propaganda? We're going to return to this fantastical adjacent series to explore the purpose of biblical fiction a little bit more again, but mostly we're going to debunk some of the misunderstandings and just plain lies about these kinds of stories. I'm hoping we can also get some guest stars from our Lorehaven creators in our next Fantastical Truth episode. Meanwhile, King Jesus reigns above all. As I said in our conversation, any lowercase k king whom we appreciate points to that future reality. I always go kind of eschatological in these wrap-ups for the show, but that's because I'm always trying to think about how 
We're looking for Jesus. These stories point to him. Any of the king's uh, nastier deeds do not. Those point to human sin. So we just get a little bit of the gospel there. Humans sin. Jesus does not. Jesus is perfect. Even King Arthur had some sin in his life. We can look forward to our reigning king, King Jesus, whether or not Arthur gets a smaller throne in the British Isles as we continue to seek and find Jesus' fantastical truth.